I honestly thought, like I said to you a minute ago, I thought yeah. I'm going to lose my license. I thought I'm going to go to prison. I genuinely thought that the, you know, that the police were going to knock at the door and they were going to take me away and I was going to have to make a phone call to dental protection from a cell saying, please help. You yeah. know, I, what do I do? When people are saying, oh, you're great, you're great, you're seeing all these patients, you're doing all these UDAs, you're seeing all these patients that might complain and they're not complaining, this is amazing. It then gets worse and it gets harder and it gets harder. And eventually you're seeing 50 patients a day wow. and you're still being double booked. 50 a day? Yeah, one of the days I did was 52 patients. Wow. And they said, Alex, we need to talk. And I'm thinking, what's what's all this about? You know, I thought I was doing all right. We need you to stop working whilst we look into this further because wow. we're really concerned. Hmm. If you can't see that patient, say no. And accept it that, you know, you're doing the right thing because you don't want to do what I did, which is say yes and then, you know, only realize when it's too late. Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of Dentistry Unmasked. My guest today is Alex Asquith, who is a dentist in Leeds, and he has very kindly agreed to come and talk to us about his uh, experience, uh, unfortunately, with the GDC. Now, Alex used to work in a practice, um, which uh, is typical of many practices up and down the country, large uh, multi-surgery NHS sites with very, very large UDA contracts, uh, where once upon a time, and it may well still be the case in some clinics that it was quite fashionable to start reducing the number of dentists in the practice and pooling dentists together and increasing the number of UDAs that individual dentists used to churn out. Now, this, you know, can put a lot of pressure on dentists. It can lead to mistakes, cutting corners, cutting corners with notes, cutting corners clinically, and ultimately it can lead to getting in trouble with the, with the authorities. And that's unfortunately exactly what happened to Alex once upon a time. So, uh, the good news is, and I'm going to ruin the end of the podcast, but the good news is that there's, uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and, uh, Alex finally, you know, got over that and, um, conditions were met and he's now working as a private dentist in a much more relaxed, uh, clinical atmosphere. But this story is, is, is really, really important for many of you working in the HS, many of you who might find yourself under a lot of stress, uh, you know, uh, high clinical workload, um, you know, pressures from area managers insisting that you see patients, but ultimately it can lead to, to getting in trouble. So this is something that we all fear and uh, very, very fortunate that a friend has agreed to come and talk to us about it. So what is the process when we actually get into trouble with the GDC? So there's a lot of lessons uh, to take away from this podcast. So I hope you enjoy listening. As always, I always appreciate your likes, your subscribes, and your shares. I must say a big thank you to Unique Implant Training for sponsoring this podcast, along with former dental suppliers who provide our verticits for our hands-on clinical courses. Uh, of course, if you want to win a verticit, which retails at £199, you can win it completely free of charge. All you have to do is, uh, on any one of the platforms, just like the video, share it, and leave a comment, uh, and subscribe if you already haven't done so and you will be in with a chance of winning a Verticit. Okay, hope you enjoy the show. Alex, welcome. Yeah. Thank you for uh, coming on to Dentistry Unmasked. Um, you know, I know a lot of people probably won't know 
who you are, but uh-huh. you have an amazing story to tell, which is why, uh, you know, it's really, really uh, kind of you to come onto the podcast and talk about this. Um, but I'd just like to start, if that's okay, because just so, so, so everybody can kind of get a feel of, you know, who you are, uh-huh. what your background is. First of all, you know, one interesting thing is, is uh, you're originally from Nottingham, is that I right? Am. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you weren't always going to be a dentist, were you? No, so the story goes, basically, um, I really, well, I played a lot of sports when I was younger. I played football, played golf, played uh, basketball, every sport you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so I played quite a high level in, in a lot of them. Um, won a few tournaments, a few bits and bobs. Um, and then basically uh, got to 17, won a golf tournament, got asked if I'd turn pro, um, but I'd already committed to dentistry, um, played football, to a reasonably high level uh, until I was about 16, 17. Um, and then some of my friends went on to turn pro. I yeah. didn't, but I, you know, I maybe could have worked harder. I had other paths open to me like dentistry and, and things. Uh, but how I got into it, I wanted to be an architect to begin with. Um, I was quite creative, quite liked art. And I was meant to go on an architect work experience. And basically at 16, uh, the school said, yeah, it's all set, it's good. And then the day before I was meant to go, um, they said, oh, they pulled out, the firms pulled out, the architect firms, uh, firms pulled out. Yeah. So you've got two options. You can either go to the dentist because nobody from my school wanted to go and do work experience at the dentist. It was a secondary school in uh, not a rough neighborhood, but it bordered on rough neighborhoods. So there was a mixed character of people there. Um, so you can either go to the dentist and do it there, or you can go to uh, to work with your mum for two weeks. And my mum is, or was, a sixth form teacher so essentially right. going back to school for two weeks so i thought definitely not going to do that i'm going to go down the avenue of going to the dentist yeah and i came across a guy called simon who was 23 24 just out of dental school um we got on really really well he liked a lot of the sports that i liked and he kind of took me under his wing and basically i fell in love with dentistry from that perspective of like you know seeing how he did things mm um the sort of the, the the little bit of a laugh you can have with your nurse with the reception that kind of thing um and i like the fact that he was doing stuff with his hands he wasn't stuck in front of a computer obviously yeah. at that time it was brown cards and it wasn't really much computers they'd just started but not not too much you were still making records on brown cards um which i know has changed a lot now because we're just stuck at computers a lot yeah. of the day um so yeah full circle huh yeah that's it (laughs) everything you didn't want yeah i'm just joking yeah so but yeah so basically at 16 i was like okay i want to be a dentist Uh, my mum and dad kind of said you know you've got to be clever you've got to be intelligent you've got to work hard i was fortunate that i got reasonably good gcse's uh and you know i worked harder for my a levels probably than my gcse's and and got the results that i wanted or needed mm-hmm. um and leeds university offered me a place and i took it with both hands and then yeah just moved through university so that's how i got into dentistry anyway amazing so quite a a change in career you know from being a yeah. professional sportsman to a dentist yeah and so yeah. yeah i mean I, I i look back now and think why did i not pursue it more Mm-hmm. I look back now and think, you know, would I be less stressed? Would I, you know, financially, I'd probably be better off if I'd done it. But then the chances of me succeeding would have been probably a little bit lower. So um, I'm happy with the choice that I made. I'm happy with my job. I'm happy with what I do. 
Yeah. Um, I like still playing sport outside as a hobby. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was good. Oh, amazing. Okay. So you ended up, uh, in dental school. I did. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you then, I mean, wh what year did you go to dental school? So I started in 2007. I graduated yeah. in 2012. Right. So one thing that we're trying to explore on this podcast is how the landscape has changed. Uh -huh. First of all, for undergraduates and then all the way through to where we are today. So do you feel that your undergraduate experience prepared you adequately for what was to come after you qualified? Um, not, not particularly. I think I learned a lot during VT, during that first right. year out. Um, especially things like root canal, like endo, stuff yeah. like that. Um, I think you only had to fill a few canals. It wasn't like you had to, you know, really done a lot of root canal fillings before you left dental school. Mm. There was totals or quotas, yet there isn't quotas, if you know what I mean. The, 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 the sort of the university line is there's no totals or quota. There's just competency and right. stuff. But realistically, there is a quota. You have to have done a reasonable amount of fillings and extractions for them to think that you're competent. So I remember my VT trainer saying, oh, you're a Leeds graduate. Okay, yeah, you're not very good at root canal treatment. Oh, is it a known thing? Yeah, and I was like, right. really? And he was like, yeah, so what we'll do, we'll use some extracted teeth, we'll get some access, you know, and we'll we'll train you up um, and extractions as well. Not particularly like, he said, oh, you're a Leeds graduate, root canal extractions, not your strongest points. Right, you do an extraction, I'll watch you, you watch me or, if you can't get it out, then just call me through and I'll I'll get it out and show you how to do it. And to be fair, he was probably right, if I'm honest. Um, he probably, you know, I needed a bit of extra time spent on them things. But um, I had a very good trainer, a guy called Shubha Mittal, um, and he spent a lot of time with me, spent a lot of effort with me, um, and, you know, gave me a lot of good little tips and tricks and things. Um, so, yeah, it was good. Yeah, so it sounds like that it, VT was really essential, really, just to consolidate everything, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think when I got to final year, everything started to click. Yeah, All the theory and practical started to come together. And yeah. I tell the fifth years this now, obviously, when I'm on clinic, I say, look, at some point during this term or during this year, things will click. That yeah. stuff you learn and you thought, why the hell am I learning this? I don't know. This is not going to be relevant whatsoever it clicks and you start to think, ah, that's why they taught me this in second year and third year and whatever else. Um, so no, I don't think people are quite ready. And I think it's got worse since the pandemic because of okay. online learning. Yeah. Um, and the dental school and the university is aware of this. They're aware that the, the people that are coming out of university now are, you know, we're trying to train them as best we can. Yeah. And, you know, they know that there's a heavily influence on VT for them. And I think that possibly is why there's an up, you know, there's a, a peak in uh, people going back in and doing DCT. Right. So from my experience of, of, of teaching students, they, um, the ones that want to further their training because they feel that they need a little bit more time, go back into DCT or what we used to call an SHO job or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think it's from what I've heard from the students, that's kind of a thing that they choose to do because they might want to go into hospital community or whatever but also some of the students that want a little bit more training they want a little bit more like okay i'm not i'm not quite ready for for me to be on my own i want somebody around that i can call upon um so i think a lot of them probably or not a lot but some go back in and do that for that reason yeah because one thing i didn't 
mentioned earlier is that you do, you are a clinical demonstrator. Yeah. At Leeds Dental Institute, aren't you? Yeah. So, Frank, question, uh, difficult one to answer, I know, but, you know, looking at the fifth years today, uh -huh. compared to you as a fifth year, do uh -huh. you feel they have as much confidence as you maybe had? Uh, some do. <clears throat> some do? <laughs> Too much. Okay, well, that's probably not a bad thing. <laughs> Too much, some of them perhaps. But yeah. No, I don't think the confidence levels have changed. I think the confidence and competence level and the fact that how they feel they're doing yeah. hasn't changed from when I was there. I think the time spent on clinics changed. I right. think the year groups have increased in size and therefore they don't get as much patient contact as we did or as I did perhaps. Can I go into that in a bit more detail because I've been trying to to understand how much clinical exposure undergrads are getting now. Yeah. So what 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 does a typical undergrad get? From my I mean I'm only there one day a week. Yeah. But I think as they go through the years they go more onto clinic and they're probably on clinic I would say most days, maybe right. in a morning or an afternoon. Um, and it just divides between what subject area they're doing. So they might be doing perio, they might be doing cons, they might be on uh, kids department, things like that. Um, so I don't know how much they're on clinic, if I'm honest, but I think they're getting enough exposure. It's just the year groups are large right. or larger than ours. They're almost doubled in size, probably. So how many, if you, how, how many were in your year group roughly? Do you know? I think there was about between fifty and sixty, maybe. And now, over a hundred. Over a hundred. Yeah, wow. hundred and six, maybe hundred and five, okay. something like that. And obviously, the facilities haven't changed. You know. No, no, uh, everything's pretty much stayed the same. I think clinical skills has become a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, two thousand and seven, maybe or maybe eight. They they redid the actual clinical floor at the, mm. at the dental school. Um, but yeah, I think to be fair, the students are doing good for what they, you know, for what they can. I think from my experience on clinic, um, some of them are getting to fifth year and they haven't quite done a crown yet, mm. which is a bit scary because I think when I was in fourth year, one of the <clears throat> progressionals was to have completed a crown, yeah. um, that got you into the fifth year. Yeah. So in that sense. But speaking on the students that I teach on a Thursday, and I've had the same group now since September, uh, I would be happy with any of them going into the practice next year. Okay. I wouldn't be concerned. That's with the students that I teach. Yeah. I I'd be happy with them going into practice. Okay. Um, well, that's good because, you know, the reason why I ask this is because the vibe I get, and one of the reasons why I started doing this is that, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm slightly older than you, as you know, I'm 41 years old. I've been around for almost 20 years now in the profession. And I kind of hear a bit of a grumble from dentists that are a bit older than me saying that the kids coming through now have no experience. I get a grumble, you know, listening, talking to a lot of young dentists saying that, well, we haven't had enough clinical experience mm. at dental school. And it's kind of just like, you know, everyone's kind of, you know, a little bit stuck really with this because, you know, one thing that I picked up on from previous episodes and previous guests is obviously they've increased the amount of of uh, students, mm -hmm. but the facilities haven't changed, so they're getting less and less clinical exposure. But it's nice to hear that uh, that you feel that they are competent coming out. Yeah. But I think the main thing that's changed, isn't it, is that VT in my year in particular, anyway, was more a case of just refining your skills, and that's kind of what it sounded like for you as well. Yeah. That you were fairly confident, but it was a case of just refining and getting up to speed ready for independent practice but now it's kind of almost become a training environment in itself where a lot of procedures being done for the first time would you agree with that yeah i would i mean 
Um, yeah, I would agree. Definitely. I think that my VT experience was at the end of fifth year at university, I was ready. I, yeah. I felt ready. I felt prepared. I felt ready to go out. Yeah. Um, obviously they don't teach you anything about finances and talking yeah. to patients about finances and how much treatment is going to cost. And yeah. that to me should be taught really either in final year and not just left to the VT, but you know, if it's, that's the curriculum to, you know, not talk about that, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I think the I think there is an emphasis on VT doing more mm. uh, hands-on training with their VT. Um, I think the VTs are having to do a lot more work than they used to. You I reckon? Think, yeah, I think so. I think the whole reflection. I think reflection's big now with yeah. uh, with VT or DF ones. I think they're called now. So, um, you know, you watch me, I watch you, and then let's talk about it. Which we or I did, but maybe we didn't make a note of. If you yeah, know I mean. yeah. Whereas yeah. everything seems to be like noted down now and, and reflected upon and things mm. like that. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, it's changed. But you know, I think the VT trainers that I've spoken to uh, that come in and 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 I speak to at the dental school, they all seem like they know what to expect when they get somebody from dental school. They know that they're going to have to take them under their wing and and show them the ropes kind of thing of practice rather yeah. than rather than just the theory and practical of dentistry. It's it's kind of practice dentistry, which is slightly different to hospital-based or or university-based dentistry. Because mm -hmm. there's time constraints. There's, you know, you've got somebody waiting. Whereas in dental school, you might see two, three patients in a session, max. Yeah. Whereas in an afternoon in practice, eventually you're going to see 15 patients maybe or 10 patients. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I agree. I think there is more onus on the VT trainers now than the than there perhaps was whether or not that's got out maybe some of the lazier vt trainers um maybe but the guys that i speak to i yeah they kind of they know what they they're getting when they get a, a sort of final year student a graduate yeah that's just the way vt is now yeah it's just it's just that the, the emphasis has has shifted from getting uh, somebody who has come out of dental school and just, you know, effectively mentoring through that year to actually teaching them procedures, a lot of them for the first time. Yeah. Like for instance, one of my foundation dentists, I had to show them how to do molar endo for the first time. Mm -hmm. Never done a molar endo at undergraduate level. Hi guys, are you thinking about getting into dental implantology? Well, if you didn't know, I'm one of the founding members of Unique Implant Training. Unique Implant Training is now in its fifth year and we are now fully EDUCOL accredited to diploma level, which is an 18-month diploma, the only 18-month implant diploma currently in the UK. So if you want to begin your implant journey, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Find us at www.uniqueimplanttraining.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you soon. So you qualified 2012. Yeah. Now the landscape has changed, so I would like to kind of get a grip as to what your expectations were once you finished VT. What kind of jobs were you guys looking for back then? We're going about 10 years ago now. So my ambition was always to um, to basically own a practice uh -huh. by the time I was 30. That was the, the goal, was to get a practice and own a practice for various reasons. So you, you're your own boss. Um, so you're financially sort of, you have a a pot basically when you want to retire you sell the practice and you've got some money in the bank um and then i graduated and i just thought i want to do dentistry so i went and just did dentistry for that first vt year learned things and then 
learned about the UDA system, how that worked and things, and then thought, right, okay, this is okay. I never thought, you know, I would sort of ever move away from the NHS dentistry, if I'm honest. I, I didn't really know about private dentistry as much. Was, was going into the NHS a given? Yeah, for me. Yeah. It was almost like you've done five years at university and you then go in and do NHS dentistry for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of older friends of mine had said, you know, you go and you sort of, you learn your craft on the NHS. Yeah. So as crude as it sounds, you go and make the mistakes on the NHS, you know? Um, so for me, it was always NHS dentistry. I never really saw myself going anywhere else. I was, I was happy not going back into the hospital. I didn't want to go back into that environment. I wanted to be in practice. I wanted my own patient base. I wanted to see different, you know, ages of patients from children to adults to elderly. I was happy with that. Um, and if things didn't change, I'd probably still be doing that now, to right. be perfectly honest with you. I was, yeah, I lived a, a reason, quite a happy life. Um, and then, you know, stresses started to take the toll. You know, targets became targets yeah. and things like that. Um, so, yeah. But for me, the the ambition was always own your own practice by 30. Yeah. So, so you've got your own sort of identity, your own boss and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know at that time what it meant to own your own practice, like the headaches that it comes with, the staff issues that you might have, um, things like that. I think it was more the status, you know, I've got my own practice. This is it, you know, I've made it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I never, never expected to do anything that I'm doing now today. Yeah. So that was the ambition to own your own practice. So to get there, you had to get some money under your belt, I presume. Correct. So that was, that was your driving. Yeah you know, force behind taking NHS jobs. So, you know, what was the typical job that you were looking for? Like, say, for instance, you know, all you, you know, your, your, your scheme say, yeah. you know, you're all looking for your first few jobs. Yeah, yeah. What, what, you know, what's expected? What, what's what's the first job look like for somebody so who's just coming out of me, PT in 2012? Yeah, so when I finished, I was looking at about 6,000 UDAs. Yeah. I didn't want to take any more um because... But doing 6,000 didn't worry you? No, not really. No. I think after the... After VT, I spoke to my trainer. I said, what do you reckon? He said, you could comfortably do 6,000. There's yeah. no issues with that. He said, I wouldn't do any more. I'd work five days a week. I'd do 6,000 UDAs. And you'll hit your target. Mm -hmm. And and that's it. And you might pick up a little bit of private on a crown or, uh, you know, something something along those lines. Um, but, you know, you can comfortably do that. So I was looking for one practice where I could have 6,000 UDAs, mm -hmm. a reasonable UDA rate. Um, I wanted it to have computers and things like that because I did go for some interviews where they didn't have computers. Mm. Um, so it had to be... How times change, huh? Yeah. <laughs> X-rays, um, yeah. ideally digital rather than wet film. Yeah. Because um, I was used to that in the VT practice. Yeah. Um, so, and close to home. Mm. <laughs> I didn't want to be traveling too far, you know, so it needed to be reasonable distance. And they were the only things that I was looking for at the time. Right. Uh, and I found a practice pretty much two minutes from where my VT practice was. Mm -hmm. And I was happy because I knew the area. I knew the, you know, I knew that I was going to get a good, you know, a good patient base. And uh, I had 6,000 UDAs and right. and stuff. I had to go and work in another practice for a few months because the position didn't become available yet. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Yeah. So when, so talk me through the next few years. 
Getting busier and busier and busier. Yeah, so I worked uh, I worked basically in a very busy practice mm -hmm. and there was five surgeries. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of dentists, lots of patients. And every year I'd get asked, do you want some more UDAs? And I'd hit my target and I might be doing a few extra UDAs if people had come back, you know, not hit the target, I'd do some more. So I thought, oh, I'll take some more on. I'll take some more on, you mm. know, a bit more extra money. I can do it. I can handle it. I can, you know. Um, and then a couple of the associates left over time. Um, you know, they moved on. Uh, one went on maternity leave and didn't come back and, and things like that. So eventually we were left to about two full-time associate dentists. Yeah. And a contract of around 15, no, how many? The contract must have been near to 30,000 yeah. UDAs. So this is about three, four years, four or five years actually after after graduating university. Yeah. And um, being a young dentist, I was very eager to please the practice manager and the, you know, the 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 owners and the corporate, it was a corporate, so the, the, you know, the owners and things, the area manager. And I worked hard. I worked really hard. I saw a lot of patients and I struggled to say no. Mm. I, as a young dentist, struggled to say no. And that was probably the biggest downfall that I had as a young dentist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to please everybody, be it patients, be it receptionists, be it nurses, be it practice managers. I wanted to please. So in pleasing, that meant triple booking yourself with emergency patients. Yeah. You know, seeing other patients that were unhappy with other dentists within the practice to, you know, sort out complications or they're going to complain. Do you mind if you see them? You're good with people that are angry. You might be able to persuade them not to complain. You might give them what they want, things like this. Yeah. So being that young, sort of looking back now, naive dentist, I was like, yeah, I will do all this. Of course I will because, it, you know, it's my place to do this. And I struggled to say no when I should say no. And so when people are saying, oh, you're great, you're great, you're seeing all these patients, you're doing all these UDAs, you're seeing all these patients that might complain and they're not complaining, this is amazing. That's all well and good. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's nice, you feel good, but it then gets worse and it gets harder and it gets harder. And eventually you're seeing 50 patients a day wow. and you're still being double booked. 50 a day. Yeah, one of the days I did was 52 patients. Wow. And what does your target go up to from 6,000? What, what? Because so you official, agreed to take more. So the official on, target right? was 7,500. Yeah. But with the almost unallocated UDA target yeah. of about 2,000 UDAs. All right. So we're looking at what? So nine and a half. Nine and a half thousand yeah. UDAs of yeah. how many days a week? That was uh, four and a half days. Four and a half days a week. Yeah. Four and a half days wow. a week. Wow. Okay. So. I only knew about all this when I look back on it. Um, mm. At the time, you're kind of in that rat race. You're just doing it. You're waking up, you're going to work, you're going home. You're waking up, you're going to work, you're going home. What's a typical day look like in terms of hours? So it's not that. that that's, I was going to say, that's not nine to five. 8.30 till five. Still. That's... With an hour dinner. Wow. With an hour <laughs> for dinner as well. And with you managed an to cram dinner. all those UDAs in there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Can I just ask before we go on to what this eventually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. Uh, what this eventually led to, what 
I mean, being agreeable and 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 pleasing your area manager and pleasing your team, of course, is is one aspect of that. Was there any other outside pressures in terms of like competition with friends, competition with other dentists, competition with, you know, uh, my mate is doing nine thousand UDs as well and he's driving a really nice car or whatever. Uh, Was there anything? If I'm like honest, that? no. My no? group of friends at university, one of them got a really ridiculous UDA rate. I remember yeah. that it wasn't the volume of UDAs, yeah. but. I think I was on about 10 or 11 pounds of UDA yeah. at the time. I think he was offered something like 14, 15 pounds. And I was like, wow, I was like, mm. that's amazing. You're going to make loads of money, you know, yeah. um, and stuff. But there was no outside pressure. No. No, none at all. I was happy, you know, we didn't talk about it. I had a couple of friends went back into the, into the hospital system and the other friends uh, were doing similar to what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and the going rate at the time was between 10 and 12 pounds and that was about it, it yeah. so there was no real competitiveness between me and anybody else it was just about me and myself really yeah um pushing myself to 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 help well what i thought at the time was help as many people as possible you know somebody's phone they've got an abscess can you see them or squeeze them at the end of dinner or squeeze them at the start of the day or just tell them to come and sit and wait you yeah. know that was a typical phrase. I'll just tell them to come and sit and wait or tell, tell why don't you just book them in at the end of dinner and I'll speak to the nurse and if we run a little bit late through dinner, then it's fine. Don't worry. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what did that all eventually lead to? Yeah. So, yeah, not good. So, basically. Because there's got to come a point where yeah, of things course. start to crack, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, eventually, you, you know, you're seeing that volume of patients. You're, you know, the other associate in the practice is saying, I'm not seeing anybody that's not my patient. So, you've got other associates that are either ill or on maternity leave or, you know, they've left. So, you end up seeing their patients on a regular basis. Then somebody likes you, which, you know, that you get told is a nice thing, but then they just want to see you. They don't want to see anybody else. Mm. So, yeah, like you say, it has to come to a head. So on one day, which was a Tuesday, the area manager and a clinical, uh, I don't know what she was, like a senior clinical advisor or something yeah. for the company came in and they said, Alex, we need to talk. And I'm thinking, what's, what's all this about? You know, I thought I was doing all right. There'd been rumors that, Basically, um, other people within the practice had been keeping tabs on how I was doing on clinically and, you know, UDA rate-wise and also how I was doing with uh, with clinically. So, you know, if I was missing things, if they'd seen a patient of mine and and they, they, they'd commented, oh, there's a bit of caries there, you know, he, he missed it on the bite wing or he didn't take bite wings, uh, you know. And so anyway, they came in on Tuesday night and they said, Alex, we need to talk. And I said, oh, what's all this about? And they said, do you know what you're, you know, do you know how you're doing? And I was like, you know, everybody tells me I'm doing good. Everybody tells me I'm doing really well. I'm, you know, I'm a nice guy. Reception like me, patients like me, everybody likes me. And they were like, no, they were like, it's not good news. And I was like, what's not good news? And they were like, basically, we've looked into your notes. We've looked into your records. We've looked into, you know, how you're performing and the quality of dentistry that you're doing or quality of notes that you are making is poor, really poor to the extent where basically we need you to stop working whilst we look into this further because wow. we're really concerned. And at that time I was like, so what do I do now? And, you know, and at the time I didn't know it was coming. I couldn't see it coming. 
I genuinely couldn't. I was just stuck in a rut. I was stuck in the rat race. I was just churning out UDAs and working hard. Patients like you, reception like you, manager likes you, everybody likes you. So I was like, oh my God, is it really that bad? Like, what is, what am I doing? Yeah. So, lot- so how does that feel? So I mean, yeah. thing is, I mean, let, let's just dig into that a little bit. You've 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 been the most agreeable guy in the practice. You've yeah, yeah. agreed to mop up everybody's shit. Yeah. For want of a better word. Yeah. Everything's going well. I wouldn't say well. Yeah, it's, it's going great, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody's smiling. You're feeling good about yourself. And That's then, it. and the area manager comes in and then hits you with that. Yeah. What goes through your head then? What's 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 the emotion? It was shock. First was shock. Yeah. It was like really me. I thought I was doing well. Even the area manager had said how well I was doing yeah. like a few months before. Um, so it was just shock. And then when they said, you know, don't, you know, we're going to look into this, but, you know, we don't want you to come back to the practice tomorrow. Of course, we look into this. I'm mm. like, whoa, uh, where, you know, where do I go? What do I do? How bad is this? How serious is this? Am I going to lose my job? Um, am I going to lose my license? Am I going to lose, what, what, you know, where's this going? So they said, basically, there's nothing you can do. Go away and we'll be in touch in about a month's time. We need to have a meeting. Um, we would recommend you speak to your indemnity mm. uh, to let them know that we're going to be investigating the quality of work that you've been doing or your notes that you've been doing. And um, and then we'll see you in about a month and we'll decide what we do from there. So they gave me some records. They were like, these are the ones that we're going to be looking at. We've done like a sample audit of your records and we want to talk to you about these records. So fine, no worries. I looked at the records because mm-hmm. they sent me them. Obviously, they have to send you them. So I looked at them and they were the worst records that you could imagine. They didn't have notes. Wow. They had uh, antibiotics prescribed without any justification. Um, they had radiographs where there was maybe caries and I hadn't took radiographs. So somebody had then seen the patient and there was caries. Just really bad sort of clinical dentistry really. Um, and so I got in touch with my indemnity and I said, look, this has happened. And they said, right, have you got the records? And I got the records and we sat down and we started working through why, why was this so bad? Um, so, you know, I had dental protection, had my back. They sent somebody to the meeting with me. Um, I went to the meeting. They basically said, look, we've took this sample of patients. We don't think this is the extent of it. We think there's more but let's talk about these. And for all the 10 patients, I had a justification and everything else. But as soon as I started saying, you know, I'm busy, I'm, you know, I got told that my records would be done by my nurse to save me time. You know, they they will be looked at, uh, looked at loads of different things. I was like, okay, well, 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 okay. I thought I was being supported by the practice here. You know, we're a few dentists down. I'm, you know, working as hard as I can. Um, Reflecting on it now, yeah. I should have taken full responsibility for uh-huh. everything that I did. Yeah, I should have checked every single set of notes, kept every single person waiting if it meant that I needed that extra bit of time to do my clinical records, to explain the procedures or to take radiographs or to do whatever it might be. But at that time, I was in a sort of pressure environment of mm-hmm. where I was had loads of people waiting and I let it slip and I let it drop the ball. You know, and looking back now, it's bad. Like, I feel really bad for the patients. I don't feel bad particularly for others, but the patients I do. Um, So advice to a young dentist is saying no is not a bad thing. 
if you need that time to do your records, if you need that time to do whatever it is, saying no is not a bad thing. If you can't see that patient because you can't, I felt bad usually thinking, oh, somebody's going to be in pain. They're going to be complaining. They're going to be whatever. But actually, do you know what? Saying no isn't a bad thing. Mm. If you can't see that patient, say no and accept it that, you know, you're doing the right thing because you don't want to do what I did, which is say yes. And then, you know, only realize when it's too late. Yeah. Okay. So basically I had the meeting and they said, yeah, we understand what you're saying. I did a load of CPD uh, in terms of, you know, guidelines, FGDP guidelines, reading up on that and all this and whatever else. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want you to come back. Basically we, you know, we, 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 uh, we've decided that, we don't want you to come back so fortunately i'd been working at an out of hours job um on an evening so I, I i picked up some more work so i could still work but the other thing they said at that meeting was um obviously we need to let nhs england know that we've let you go and the reasons why we've let you go mm -hmm. and i said okay didn't really think i thought that was a normal thing thought yeah uh, reset start again kind of thing and then it was like oh okay and the gdc will know as well right and the colleague who had been keeping tabs on you have let nhs england know that basically she's found some things in your clinical notes where they well there was no clinical notes for some patients and as the old motto goes if you've got no notes you've got no defense mm -hmm. so i went away from that meeting thinking i don't know what the future holds could it be nhs knocking at my door could it be gdc knocking at my door who could it be and they both came knocking at the door. Really? After all, after all sort of times, girl. So, so so you went away from that meeting, you had yeah. that little tidbit of information. Yeah. So again, what's going through your head at that point? Because so at you, that point, yeah. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I am going to lose my GDC registration. I am going to go to prison. Really? That was a fear. Yeah, yeah. I genuinely thought that the police were going to knock at the door. Yeah. I thought, I thought that basically the way that they explained everything in the meeting i thought i'm a criminal they mm. made me feel like i was a criminal for because some fillings that had been done hadn't had notes for so had they been done had they not been done they were like that that was their reaction their reaction was you have claimed for things that maybe haven't been done and so i was looking at fraud yeah and right, i'm saying right. so how do you but i'm saying get the patient in mm. look in the mouth and it's been done you know but there's no records Mm. there's no records to prove it so anyway so i had the letter uh essentially from nhs saying we want to talk to you mm. so i spoke to nhs england with dental protection they pretty much had the same meeting that i'd already had about the records that i'd already had they had a few more but they, they essentially were the same records and we talked a little bit about you know should you have done this? Should you have taken an x-ray here? Did you miss caries? Did you prescribe antibiotics when you should have accessed the tooth? You know, these kind of things. And I sort of said, yeah, I completely agree. I, you know, my dentistry was not clinically as high a standard as I would have liked it to be at that time. I have since reflected upon that. I've done CPD to learn from that. And I'm now aware of that. And then the NHS said pretty much the same thing. We're going to have to let the GDC know about this. <laughs> so I knew the GDC thing was coming. I kind of thought they're going to want to do something. And sure enough, I got 
oh, you're going to get investigated, fitness to practice. So how do they notify you? How does this feel? I mean, I was, well, first of all, before the feeling of it, how does it manifest itself? What happens? A letter drops letter. through your door? Do you get sign a phone post, call? S- sign letter. Sign letter. I'm still scared to sign sign letters to this day when they come through the post and yeah. it says it needs to be signed for. So yeah. NHS and GDC, they sent signed letters. And then when you open that envelope, what, what goes through your head? I honestly thought, like I said to you a minute ago, I thought yeah. I'm going to lose my license. I thought I'm going to go to prison. I genuinely thought that the you know that the police were going to knock at the door and they were going to take me away and I was going to have to make a phone call to dental protection from a cell saying, please help. You yeah. know, I, what do I do? Um. So anyway, so I went, I got the got the letter. I was constantly in, in conversations with dental protection who were, by the way, exceptional for me personally. Yeah. On a personal note, they were exceptional. And the solicitors as well that dental protection have, have got or employed. And they were very supportive. Emotionally, they were very, very, very supportive. Yeah. You know, don't be, you know, you're not going to lose, you know, you're not going to go to prison. You're not going to lose your license. You're not going to, you know, or, you know, let's think about this rationally. They haven't said anything yet. They've said they want to investigate. That's it. There's no more, just investigating. They might come out, you're going to show them all the CPD you've done. They might be okay and say, you know what? This guy, he he's okay. You've got character references from other people and whatever else. So the GDC eventually then say, we want to do interim uh, orders committee uh, down in London. So dental protection and the solicitor said, you're going to come down to London wow. and we're going to present some evidence for you in your on your behalf saying because since then i'd moved on i got a new job so bear in mind this wasn't overnight this is like over six months from the initial meeting when they said don't come back tomorrow to the gdc meeting it was about six months is there a day in that six months where you're not thinking about it no every day i'm thinking more is going to come out more patients complaining from a previous practice more um correspondence with nhs or gdc Mm. just constantly you know don't you don't want to you don't want to refresh your emails you don't want to refresh your emails or open a letter that's simply how it feels Mm. so anyway so basically i started a new fabulous job in private practice because nhs said basically we've got a load of conditions or no nhs i didn't even want to go back into nhs i think at the time there was no conditions on me at all right but i'd been fortunate that i um, I'd, I'd found a private practice job, fully private, no NHS. Because mm. I think I'd been a bit tainted by the NHS in terms of my mental sort of like, oh God, the NHS are after me. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to work on the NHS. So I, I went and found a private practice job. And at the time when I applied for the job, none of this was, ever, you know, this wasn't happening. It was all sweet. It was all, oh, I'm going to start private practice. Yeah, this is great. Um, of which the private practice was superb in supporting me as well, by the way. Um, so I started learning new things in private practice, digital dentistry, Cerex scans and mm. things like that, implant dentistry, started observing implants and restorative, advanced restorative work and stuff. So I'm thinking, oh, this is this is great. This is like, wow, this is a new world. And then it all comes back down to earth when you get the GDC and the NHS letters. Mm. So basically I ended up with a meeting in London, interim order committee saying, um, we're going to put some conditions on your registration. And I think I had about 12 conditions. 
Guys, as you know, I am the lead tutor of the Hedro Academy Vertical Preparation course. Now, we have put together this beautiful vertical preparation kit, which has been beautifully made by Former Dental Supplies. Simon at Former has kindly agreed to give one lucky winner uh, of this podcast a kit completely, completely free of charge, uh, which retails normally at £220 plus VAT. So all you have to do to win one of these fantastic vertical preparation kits is just give us a like, uh, subscribe to the podcast and share it and leave a comment below and we will pick one lucky winner every podcast and uh, Burkitt will be finding itself uh, in your clinic. Okay, so yeah, great guys. The Horacle Burkitt by Hedro Academy and former dental supplies. Tell me just very quickly because I know that this is obviously quite an awful thing to talk about but mm. is this in the official gdc building where, where, no. where, where these hearings happen no so i thought it would be on wimpole street yeah, or somewhere like that yeah it wasn't it was in a different part of london yeah and it was almost like an an, an office right um um not very sort of noticeable you'd not no big gdc sign or anything no. like that um, you go in and you're met by somebody, they take you to a room, they say your solicitor's already here, and then you sit in a room and it's a bit like um you you sort of a bit like court, I suppose. That's what it is. You know, mm -hmm. you go to your room, you talk with your solicitor, and then you go to another room. It didn't look like a courtroom, it just looked like a seminar room essentially, with lots of tables in positions that kind of looked a bit like a courtroom. Yeah. A bit of a jury, judge, and that kind of thing. Somebody making notes, minutes. Um, and then you were on one side with your solicitor. And um, the GDC had their solicitor or barrister on the other side. So then they say, the GDC are investigating you for all these different allegations. You know, um, negligence, practice, you know, uh, your practice not being up to scratch, basically. Mm -hmm. And then your solicitor makes a statement, say, uh, we understand all this, um, but we've got some character references from his new employer that says he's been extremely good. You know, the clinical work that he's produced at this new practice is, is very good. We also had some audits for clinical records. We had some radiograph audits. We had some uh, anti antibiotic prescribing audits. So we had some evidence to show that basically in the time between when I started the new job and when I went for this hearing, I had been practicing good dentistry. You know, I had somebody that said, yeah, I can vouch for him. I'm happy with his with his work. And I had some audits uh, to say, you know, we'd, we'd audited my work and it was, it was good. So anyway, the conditions come down and essentially the conditions are, um, you can still practice. So, you know, you're not suspended, but we need you to register with a dental professional every day. So you have to have a designated person that you can go to and say, I'm here. I'm, and if I have any problems, can I come and talk to you? Um, ideally, it's somebody at your level or higher. That was the condition. So it's either me, the practice owner, another associate dentist, or, um, or the orthodontist that was there. Mm -hmm. One of the days it didn't work because I was the only practicing dentist. So the practice owner had said, you know, it needs to work. He's the only practicing dentist. So I was allowed to register to a dental nurse because she had a registration. So that's what happened. 
And then they said, basically, we'll review your case in six months. We're still investigating things from your old practice. Um, we'll review things in six months and basically have another hearing to see if we need to increase the order, which means restrict your practice or whether we drop them and you can go back to practicing. Um, and essentially that is what happened in the first hearing. I left and I thought, well, what happens next? And the solicitor said, actually, we've done okay because you're still practicing. Sounds all right to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, if you put your name into Google, you have a GDC oh. hearing. Uh -huh. If you go okay. on the GDC register, it has an asterisk and says with conditions. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't all plain sailing. It was, and, and the thing is, it's kind of like, I can still practice for now. Yeah. They're still investigating. They're still looking into things from the old practice. So you have another hearing, but you don't have to be there in person. So they can do it on the paper. And on the paper essentially means that all parties agree that nothing's changed or nothing significant's changed. And therefore, you don't have to go in person. You can if you want, and they can have it in person. Or if not, you can have it on the papers. And on the papers basically was, yeah, we're still doing our investigation. Is everything still working on your end in terms of in practice? And it was. So you carry on. But during that time, I was getting ready for the, essentially for a fitness to practice hearing. I wanted to accrue as much evidence as possible mm -hmm. that I was not the dentist that I was when it all started. I wanted to basically have some valid validation of audits of people that, you know, could vouch for me, clinical cases um, and things like that. So over the space of about 18 months, I was doing audits all the time, audit radiographs, audit x-rays before crowns so making sure that i take an x-ray before i do a crown prep um you know antibiotics are they justified are they fgdp guidelines justified mm -hmm. um and i got people in the practice to do audits on me and then i'd go through the audits as well um and reflect on them so and then doing cases so i'd go and i'd do a case report with my practice principal and we'd sit down and we'd say right let's go through these cases so I had like 10 cases a month and we'd sit down and we'd say what went well, what didn't go well, what could we have done different? And then we'd sign them off to say we'd talked about it. So I was doing all that. And I went to meet a guy in Sheffield who was Health Education England, uh, professional development supervisor. So he helps you with PPD. Yeah. So he helped me generate a PPD when the GDC had changed it slightly. So it was all, you know, the, the aims and objectives and the different um letters you know that that correspond to what core subjects it's it's hitting and so i met with him once a month and he basically helped me produce a ppd that was very thorough and hit the areas that they were investigating so if i had miscarries if i missed prescribed antibiotics what was i doing in terms of professional development to make sure that i was wasn't going to do that in the future so we had a real strong like professional development plan mm -hmm. that said, I know what you're going to say I did, but this is what I've done to prove that I'm okay now. You know, I've looked back and I've reflected and I've learned and I'm not doing that anymore. So I needed evidence to say I'd learned from it, evidence to say that I'd done some reading and some learning about the different areas. So, and it all came down to things like not taking an x-ray before you do a crown prep. 
prescribing antibiotics without valid justification for prescribing antibiotics. Um, missing caries and so radiography and rate and bite wing audits and things like that. So stuff like that. So basically I did that for about 18 months and I had, you know, I had people signing me off constantly. I had uh, case reports being reflected upon. I had lots of professional, lots of certificates of professional development. I went on a BDA NHS regulations, mm -hmm. uh, CPD down in London of which you learn what you can claim for and what you can't claim for and how basically the BSA, the NHS BSA, uh, uh, assess your data and how you basically, or what, what you essentially should be doing and how you should be doing it, which I never, never got. When mm -hmm. we go back to VT, nobody sat me down and said, this is a band one, this is a band two, this is band three. You learned from your VT trainer, but there was no formal training to say, what, These did, are the, what exactly did you learn? I do, I, what, what did you pick up on in that course? So NHS regulations. So essentially... What you can and can't claim for. Correct. Right. So that was that never ever taught to you? Never. Really? Never. Not that I can remember anyway. Wow. And do you think that was possibly one of the factors that caused... Oh, definitely. I mean, for example, um, you do a bite-raising appliance. Uh -huh. It is not an other occlusal appliance, which is a band three. It's actually a band two. And on... Wow, okay, say that again for everybody. So on a bite-raising appliance, yeah. a soft splint, Yeah. from my recollection of the regulations, it's a band two, not a band three. Uh -huh. Even though it comes with a lab bill, Yeah. it should be a band two. And you have to review the patient after six weeks to check if they're wearing it and if the symptoms of TMJ or bruxism has improved. Yeah. So one of the things was you're doing, you're claiming for band three for an occlusal appliance on a, on a bite-raising appliance, Yeah. soft splint. And it's not. It's not a band three, no? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have a clue because I haven't done NHS entry for literally a decade. So, so yeah. Um, that period, yeah. so from your first hearing, yeah. which, you know, listen to your story, obviously, it's, 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 it's quite upsetting. But, you know, leaving that first hearing yeah. with, with them saying that you're not suspended and you can continue to practice. Yeah. Goes on for another 18 months before the second hearing. Is that right? Yeah. 18 months mm -hmm. are you able to sleep in those 18 months are you still have you still got that same degree of... you're still dealing with nhs england you're having to go to meetings with nhs yeah. england you're having to report sort of uh, sending audits to people like nhs england mm -hmm. to show you're not really sleeping i mean the thing is you're, you're waiting for the fitness to practice hearing yeah that's the one that you're thinking am I going to basically lose everything here or not? So really you're just working as hard as you can yeah. to change, you know, to one, show evidence that you've, you've learned, you've reflected and you're a different person, but two, that you're basically, you're so busy that you're trying to do that. You don't really think, you know, you're worried about what might happen next. You've got that 18 months, haven't you? And every day, you know, well, not every day, but, you know, you think it's always at the back of your mind mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. this might not be forever. Mm -hmm. It took three years. In total. Yeah. I think it was about three years. It was from January 2000 and no, two, two and a bit years. So it was January 2018 mm. to August 2020. Is that, that's post COVID, right? Yeah. 
So all this was going on mm-hmm. at the same time as lockdown. Yeah, and... I had to have meetings on uh, Zoom or Teams oh, or whatever like that. Yeah, that must have been. Yeah. yeah. We did lots of records over it. I think we spent a full day going over patients' records mm. via Teams or or Zoom or whatever it is. So anyway, eventually, so I'm, I'm doing all this hard work. I'm really trying to hit everything and, and tick all the boxes for like, you know, um, showing and demonstrating that I've. I've, I've reflected and I'm, I'm changing and I'm, you know, I'm not the finished article. I'm, I'm learning about all these, you know, things and how I was and what I can do. So anyway, I remember I got an email from, uh, from the GDC. And as soon as I got an email from the GDC, I forwarded it straight to the solicitor as soon as I got it, because I just wanted them to be in the loop. Sometimes it only came to me. Sometimes it came to me and came to them mm. and dental protection. I got the email and I remember I opened it and at this time, it had gone to an expert witness. Uh, my my case had gone to an expert witness. And they were going to give their opinion on it. So they were going to give their uh, advice. And then it had gone to what happens next. So essentially, I pick up the email, I open it up, and I look at it, and I go, okay, GDC, oh dear, mm-hmm. what's new? And I'm reading, and it says it's gone to expert witness, we've got this opinion and whatever else, and then... I'm reading it, I'm reading it, and all of a sudden I see and no further action and all orders will be dropped wow. immediately. Mm. Immediately. So as soon as I saw that, straight on the phone to the solicitor, I'm like, can you just read this email and just tell me if it's what I think it is? And she read it and she said, yep, you, you've basically, yeah, you've read it right. It's, they've dropped everything. And I was like, so I'm free. Like, that's it. Mm. Not quite. NHS haven't dropped anything. Oh. So the way that it worked was whatever GDC did, NHS did. Bear in mind, I'm in private practice. I'm not doing any NHS dentistry at this time. I'm not really concerned about what NHS are thinking yeah. because the GDC are the ones that I'm really concerned about. Losing your... And losing your license. License, absolutely. So anyway, I then get another uh, email probably a month or two later. So at that time, I'm really happy. There GDC, must have been some relief. There must have been some uh, do you know what? decompress the, after the, that. Email. The only way I can describe it is the scene in Pursuit of Happiness uh, when he lands the job and he goes on the street at the end of the film and he puts his hand up and he's got all these people walking around him and it's that gratification of the hard work that he'd put in and, and obviously I'd put yeah. in. And I just thought... And it basically, the, the letter read that, yes, there was a lot of mistakes that were made, mm. but this person has shown that they have reflected, they have learned, and they have shown evidence that they have learned, and yeah. they have shown evidence that they are still learning. And I'm still learning to this day, as you all know, I've gone on to do other things as well. And it was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing feeling. Mm. With the tiny, tiny catch of like, okay, what's happening with the NHS thing now? Yeah, because hopefully they'll just drop it as well. Um, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> so I moved on from the private practice job um, to another job in twenty twenty one, and it had a small NHS contract, um, about six hundred UDAs. So it was a very small contract. And when I applied for the job, I was completely open and honest. I said, "Look, I've been through this. I've been given the all clear." NHS England still have got, you know, I'm still needing to talk to them before I you know, can start work. So I still for six months after that had to produce audits 
mm-hmm. on my notes, my records, my um, radiographs, and get somebody to write a, a, a report or a, a reflection on me every month. Or it was every three months, I think. So we did two of them. And then uh, the solicitor said, we're going to write to the NHS and we're going to say, we think everything should be dropped now. You know, we think you've showed enough evidence. And so they wrote and they said, we think that we've shown you enough, you know, and whatever else. And I think I did it for another three months. I think they said, well, we want a little bit more. So I did it for another three months. And then eventually NHS did drop the conditions of having audits done. I had somebody come out and do audits on me as well um, at this new job, at the new practice. Um, they did an audit on my records and they did an audit on my radiographs, mm-hmm. um, the NHS uh, person. And then we had a chat about it afterwards and he said, how's it going? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, you must be feeling good about everything, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, but about two years ago, mate, you were saying all the things, but he was a nice guy and, and you know, he's, he sort of said some nice things, which was, which was great. Um, so, yeah, so that takes me to sort of 20, almost 20, sort of 21, something like that, I think it was. And I was yeah. like, <gasps> so... And then that's it. And then and how did they eventually drop it then? How did, what, just a letter or just an a email letter again? Yeah, letter or an email, yeah. just saying basically um, all conditions are dropped. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember just the relief of like, that's it. It's like it's over. It's you know, um, yeah. It was just I, even to this day, I remember just being like, I can't believe it. It was shock again, shock when it happened, and shock when it's over. That must be one big piss up that night, huh? It was uh, it was a good time. <laughs> it was a good time, um, but yeah, it was just you know what. I never thought the day was going to come, and it came, yeah. and it came, and it and it was great. And it, it, I put I put a few things on hold. Yeah. So when I went to the new private practice in 2018, I wanted to get into implants. I wanted to get into a bit more postgraduate education, private mm. dentistry, and things like that. And I remember speaking to the guy at Dental Protection and saying. What do you think? And he said, look, you can go and do it. There's no issues. They're not restricting you from doing these extra courses. Um, and I said, well, what happens if I get halfway through and they strike me off? Yeah. You know, I'm five grand in or whatever and yeah, they strike yeah. me off. And he said, yeah, yeah, that could happen. He yeah. was like, I'm not saying it couldn't. So I put every, I put a lot of things on hold. Life's on hold for how long? Two, two and a half, two and years. Two and a half years probably, yeah. yeah. So I thought, right, we'll put things on hold. And then once it... Um, once it all got dropped and everything had settled and everything like that, I started looking again at where I was at dentistry-wise, mm. professional career-wise. And I thought, you know what? I want to get back into a few things. So, for example, the clinical demonstrating, I had to drop that mm-hmm. during all of this. So I picked up a job doing that again because I really enjoyed it and I still do really enjoy it. Um, you know, lecturing and tutoring and, and, and things, the, the students is is really rewarding for me. Um, from a personal side of you know side of things, and then I wanted to get into placing implants, as you all very well know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd restored them for a number of years under a very very skilled surgeon who who you know that was his thing. He'd done it for thirty years. He was exceptional at it. I'm not going to deny that his his work was very very good. Um, but I was never going to place in that practice because he was the the dentist that placed the implants, and that's fine. And I, and I understood that. But now I'm in a new practice mm. and I feel like I can restore implants, but I should, and I want to start placing them myself. So that's when obviously we started talking again and, and I went and did the unique implant training 
and I haven't and, asked you to plug this by no, the way. No, just you don't, no, 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 don't worry. <laughs> but so, yeah, no, I appreciate you mentioning it. Yeah. So I went and did yeah. the year certificate um, with yourself and uh, the other guys, and it was great. Really, really, really good. Really hands on. Uh, placed a lot of implants in that year, which I was very fortunate. I had you know a good patient base that allowed mm. me to do that. Um, and then it's just moved on. And then, you know, now I'm back teaching again and I'm looking at the next thing in, in my career, which is doing another restorative course or, you know, perhaps doing something in oral surgery. I'm not sure yet, yeah. but I've accumulated a, a quite a nice set of skills uh, through basically working with really good dentists and being able to shadow them and pick up things from yeah, them. Man. Well, hats off to you because that's a lot that you've been through is very, very stressful and it's enough to make a lot of people just give up, mm. you know, but you've come out the other end of it and I know how highly skilled you are being your mentor Thank in you. implant dentistry and mate, honestly, you're very, very good at what you do and uh, it would be a loss to the profession Thank if you, you weren't, 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 weren't carrying forward with it. Um, can I just ask you a couple of other things yeah. briefly? And I want to talk about indemnity because mm -hmm. one thing that you mentioned is, you know, your indemnity company during this whole... Uh, uh, episode was mm -hmm. was effectively your rock. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they they were amazing for you. Yeah. Um. Now going back to undergraduate level, going back to dental school, mm -hmm. what was your experience of the indemnity companies at dental school? Yeah. And you know what was the message that they were giving? Were you ever scared, should we say, of one day getting sued? What was the message back when you were? A young undergraduate. When I was an undergraduate, the only sort of exposure to the indemnities was that they sponsored some of the events that were being put on. Mm. I'll be honest, they were that was like, oh, okay, we've got a couple of companies that are sponsoring this event, this sports day, this night out, this barbecue, whatever it is. You got the little badge from the. You DVD got the little badge. You yeah, got yeah, the, yeah. the you know you got the yeah. pen or whatever it was or the hoodie and things mm. you know. Um, and that was it. It was, there was like, you know, you're going to need indemnity for when, you know, things might happen. Um, but there was never any scare tactics. There was never, ne never any, you must have this in place or, mm. or else, or, and there was never a, you're going to get sued in your career. Mm -hmm. I'm unfortunate. I've been in positions where I've, I've had a few people sue me. Yeah. I've lent on my indemnity. They've supported me yeah. and I've had good experiences with them. Yeah. Um, so, but as a young dentist, you were never told, oh, you're going to get sued. There was rumors, there was murmurs about, oh, you'll be sued by the time you're 30 and yeah. every dentist gets sued at some point in their career and things like that. Um, but in honesty, at dental school and undergraduate level, there was never that knowledge that that's going on in the world, you know? Mm. I think the no win, no fee lawyers weren't around then. Uh, so, you know, I think maybe they were. I mean, I'm, I'm, mm. I, you, you're. 2012 qualifiers, right? Uh -huh. So I'm 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 2004, so a little bit older than you, and I'm just reflecting on, on 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 my experience. So in the sense, yeah, it was the same message. Dental protection. I just knew that they provided us with, uh, you know, our yearbook at the end. That's it. You know, they sponsored events and stuff, and maybe we had one or two talks about, you know, indemnity and. Uh, how it was a necessary thing in practice, but it wasn't drilled into us that one day you might get sued. Mm -hmm. Now I was talking to a young dentist, you know, in a previous podcast and saying basically from year one, 
mm-hmm. they will have a chat from dental protection. Right. One of the biggest things uh, is is the whole social media side of things. They're okay. educated about social media, saying don't post this, don't post that, don't post political views. Oh, wow, you know? okay. And I suppose one of the big things is that, I mean, Facebook was around in your day, but yeah. Facebook and dentistry wasn't a big thing, was it? No. No, no. So, no. Facebook was for your friends at university. That's right. You were just posting where you were, or yeah. you were basically saying a status about, you know, uh, what you'd been up to or or whatever. It wasn't a necessary... Yeah. It was just making contact with people. It wasn't, That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, that was it. So I think... You know, just drilling down and really listening to you, listening to, you know, other guests who have been on previously. I think one of the biggest things that really is breaking the profession is social media. So I think future episodes, we're going to have to probably explore Mm -hmm. the role of social media and how it's changed the landscape. Really not, I don't, I don't think for the better anyway. I mean, feel free everybody to comment, you know, in the, in the section below after the podcast about what your thoughts are about social media, but it really has caused a lot of damage. Not I mean, I, I, I came off social yeah. media years ago. Yeah. 2014, I think it was. I just completely got Still, rid of everything. Why'd you do that? Uh, I just didn't feel I needed it. Mm. I, do you know what? There was a moment, there was a, a moment in practice and I walked into the staff room and I tried to have a conversation with the uh, the nurses and the other dentists there, and they were all just staring at their phones, oh, scrolling, scrolling up and down. Yeah, well, guilty of and yeah, yeah. I'll be honest with you, I tried to make a few conversations, and I thought to myself afterwards, I don't want to be that guy that's just staring at the screen, scrolling up and down. Yeah. And I didn't use it particularly. I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of these that would check on people and 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 stuff, and I didn't post anything. And I thought what is the point of me having this, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I just got rid of it. I never had Instagram at the time. I just had Facebook and that was it. I think I had Twitter, but I very rarely, I think I just checked on a few celebrities' Twitters to see what they were doing. And, yeah. and I got rid of it and I got rid of it for years. And then the only thing that I have got now, and it's only when I started doing Invisalign, yeah. uh, which is a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, um, I got an Instagram page yeah. for professional one. Yeah, yeah. Just to try and basically post some cases um, and essentially get a few people through the door for, for Invisalign. And, uh, and I still do post a few cases from time to time. I've, I've, I've got a son now who's taken up a lot of my time. So um, (laughs) thank you. So um, I'm not posting quite as much as a lot of people are, but um, every now and again, I'll put something on there and it's purely just as a, it's a nice way to put, put your work out there. I think, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to cry if, if if nobody comes through the door through Instagram and stuff like yeah. that. I think my work have got a good Instagram, um, and and therefore they they want to tag you in stuff if you've done stuff and and stuff like that. So they were the ones that essentially said, "Oh, you haven't got it. Oh, I would recommend you get it, and then mm. we can tag you in stuff." And it mm-hmm. it just became a little bit of a side hobby for me and my wife. Um, and then obviously she she fell pregnant, and we've now you know had our, all our time occupied with our. Oh, beautiful. So, so has Instagram gone? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean, it's there, <laughs> yeah. it's there, but it's not, it's, you know. It's not as important we're as not every, Yeah, we're not, we're, yeah. We're, we're nowhere near there every day, every week. It's it's once in a, in a in so often that we'll put something on there. Just if there's a, if there's a nice case that I've done, um, then, then I'll put it on there. Yeah, cool. So just to wrap up really, Alex, um, given this whole episode, given mm-hmm. this whole experience. Yeah. 
you know, because one of the biggest things for young dentists now is they're just scared of getting sued. Yeah. That has changed the way people want to work. Yeah. That has changed the recruit. There is a recruitment crisis. Yeah. In the NHS. People don't want to work these NHS jobs anymore. And understandably so, really. So given that, though, I mean, the thing is, is that that sounds like quite a harrowing experience to me. Mm. But you've come out the other end of it. Mm -hmm. Given this whole episode, what is your advice to young dentists? Don't be scared to say no. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in the position of like, you know, you've got to look after yourself as well. You know, your your, your own well-being, your own mental health, your own stress levels. Mm. Um, don't take on more than you, you can. Um, and try and have a reality check every now and again to look at how you're working and see if it is good quality dentistry or if it's if if you are just rushing things to get the next patient in or if you're not spending enough time on your notes that are obviously very important mm. make sure if your assistant is doing notes for you you are checking them and you are ticking things through that should be ticked through um and 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 things so you're vetting basically if you're getting support from your practice through your nurse and things like that just make sure you're your name is the one at the bottom of the of, of it at the end of the day. So you're the one responsible. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the biggest things for me coming out of this was, yeah, as much as it's nice to have support from people, from practice managers, area managers, nurses, you know, whatever, you're the one at the end of the day. It's your name. It's your reputation. It's your license. It's your career. Yeah. So you have to take full responsibility for that. And if that means taking an extra five minutes to make sure your records are done, making sure you take them bite wing radiographs when they're justified and due to be taken and not thinking I'll just do it next time, then take that time because it's important and it will stand you in good stead for if anything did happen, mm -hmm. then you can fall back and say, do you know what? I've done everything that I should have done and I was taught to do and everything else. So just give yourself more time then you perhaps think you want to and check with yourself every few months to make sure that you're doing it. You know, mm. you're, you're doing a good job because it's easy to get sucked into the, you know, just nine to five or eight thirty to five or whatever it is that you do and not look back and reflect on what you're doing, how you're doing both mentally and performance wise, obviously. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant advice. Really. Just quick question for you just before we, we wrap this up really. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, these big multi chair NHS clinics, very much like the one that you worked uh -huh. in, they're having recruitment problems now because people just don't want to work these jobs anymore. What yeah. do you think is the future of all this? <sighs> I mean, uh, yourself, you've exited the NHS now, you're purely private. Mm -hmm. I've been private for over a decade. You know, I've owned two NHS practices myself. And the reason why I sold them is because I could just see that recruitment was becoming harder and harder and harder. It's all a bit messed up really, isn't it? It is. I mean, the funding and the way that the UDA system works doesn't help recruitment because it is performance-based and target-based. Yeah. And that probably is the nux of it, as in why it probably doesn't work because people can either get too stuck in it, they can fiddle it, they can do whatever they want with it. And, you know, it just needs to go back to doing good dentistry. Mm. And I think if you, if if the NHS could provide a format and a way that you get paid for doing good dentistry, be it sessional-based dentistry or whatever it might be in the future, rather than this UDA system, I think it will attract dentists. 
um, you know, for example, I think Wales did a trial on getting paid per session. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how many patients you see. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to get paid at the end of the day. We just want you to do good quality dentistry. And I think if that was an option to me when I was a younger dentist and they said, look, you're going to get a paycheck at the end of the month and it's not going to be based on what you do and how you do it and how many people you see. It's going to be based on basically you doing, being in the chair and doing good quality dentistry. That would be more appealing to me mm -hmm. than the system that we have currently, which is, you know, oh, you're behind or you need to see this person or that person or we've got 100 people waiting outside the door. And I think I speak on, obviously, I don't own a practice, but if you had a practice or you could open up a practice and they said, look, we're not going to put pressure and targets on you. We want you to see as many patients as possible, but we understand, you know, the constraints and things like that. But we just want quality. We want the dentistry to be good that you produce. And we want the patients that walk out of your surgery to be fit and healthy and and, and things and, you know, have, have good oral health and, and you've got time to, to give them that. I think more NHS practices would emerge and I think more patients would then be seen on the NHS. Mm -hmm. But it would be about changing the way that things are run from the top. That's the million dollar, you know, scenario, isn't it? It's just if, if, if that could, if we could marry up the clinical and the financial mm. then there'd be no problem. But uh, it's a tough one. It's a good job we're not politicians, huh? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but Alex, once again, thank you so much for agreeing to come and sit down and talk to us today you know it's a great story and uh, there's a lot to learn from it mm. so you know very much enjoyed sitting here and talking to you and thanks again for coming on you're welcome cheers thank you <laughs>